0: We've produced near 86 episodes in just over a year with some amazing guests, including Gavin Wood of Polkadot, Quent Bennett of Filecoin, CZ of Binance, Sandeep of Polygon, Sergey of Chainlink, the list goes on. We've managed to cover both DeFi booms and NFT booms live. They were happening with the founders inside the storm hearing their origin stories, plans, hopes, fears, and dreams, with many of them going on to build unicorn companies and multi-billion dollar networks. So firstly, I wanna send a big thank you to all of you, the listeners who've rated, listened, rated, shared, the podcast helping us grow our audience to what is now several thousand per episode, not just from the US and Europe, but across the world, including Japan, India, Southeast Asia, Australia, you name it. You might have noticed that we've now kind of quietly changed the name of the pod from founders of web three to the metaverse show. So what the hell is that all about? Well, it's to reflect our increasing focus on web three but in the context of the metaverse and how its technologies can make the metaverse more open. We believe it's critical we expand our guest lists from just founders to creators and collectors to address this kind of increasing diversity of stakeholders engaging within Web3 and innovating with its technologies, but also to address the direction of travel of the metaverse itself and our hope that we can imbue it with principles that we all care about in Web3 around user centricity, sovereignty of identity, data and digital wealth. We wanna explore how NFTs and DeFi combine and converge in the metaverse for what we call MetaFi. So as ever, if you're building a startup in the open metaverse, leveraging Web3 technology, apply to our world leading accelerator, Basecamp, at outlierventures.io slash Basecamp. And finally, if you wanna see our graduates, which kind of speak themselves to our portfolio coming out of Outlier Ventures, go to diffusion.events where you can meet them as they graduate their investors and partners for world beating alpha for what happens next in the metaverse Today I'm really happy to welcome to the show CEO and founder of Kaiko Ombre Subrian welcome Andre. thanks a lot So we describe Kaiko as providing enterprise SaaS infrastructure allowing for market participants in the blockchain space to access reliable, historical, and real-time market data on all traded cryptocurrencies. Um, We're going to explain a little bit about why that's important and then what is possible when we have uh, integrity of data, especially in an institutional context. Um, so reasons why I've got you on the show. Um, so you've just closed uh, a pretty significant series A 24 million dollars. You're also kind of experiencing fantastic growth. So, the number I had prior was that you had 100 plus exchanges and 70,000 traded instruments, and you just told me actually it's 120,000 um, um, and that you've doubled coverage uh, in the last year. So phenomenal growth, and no wonder um, you're unlocking that kind of money at Series A. Um, But I also think it's going to be interesting to talk about institutional adoption generally of crypto, and then of course, subsets like DeFi, um, as there's an increasing um, amount of interest from regulators about the space. It'd be interesting to get your perspective um, to hear about how institutions are looking at the space and, and what they are and aren't considering. Um, but before we do, let's jump into your background. So as I understand it, you're you're very well placed to be doing something like this. Um, You've formerly worked HSBC where you're in charge of sales and structuring of the strategic equity derivatives um, and financing solutions for a number of large listed corporations globally, I think Europe, LATAM and and North America, but it would be kind of good to get a a short summary of what led you to crypto. And then of course, the specific problem that you're trying to solve for, which is to have more reliable trusted data sets to inform the crypto market.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for the very uh, detailed uh, introduction. So just by kind of talking about my background, I studied applied mathematics and computer science, and I've always been generally very much interested in anything that has to do with technology in the realms of finance, food, and health, just to place the context. And so as I was working for HSBC, I've always kind of been reading on the sidelines and and being informed on on kind of new tech in these areas, and that's how I ended up finding about Bitcoin. It was reading about um, the original Bitcoin white paper that was published uh, back in 2008. I didn't read it then. I read it a couple of years later, but I thought it was it was really interesting in what it meant for the way we represent ownership of assets in a digital form. Um, I had been already a couple of years uh, structuring equity derivatives at, at HSBC. And if you think about it today, when we own an equity or when we own a debt security of any of those traditional capital markets assets, the ownership of that asset is already represented in a digital format, right? We're not sending paper certificates around the world anymore. And blockchain was just a novel way of representing Ownership, and that's really what initially dragged me into that. Um, so I started looking at Bitcoin back in 2012. In 2013, I tried to socialize the the notions of Bitcoin and blockchain to to the bank, which I believe, uh, understandably, was a bit too early. Bitcoin back then had a relatively uh, negative connotation and reputation, um, and so it took kind of a couple more years for the general institutions to look at bitcoin um, from the perspective of oh this may be a scarce crypto assets this may be digital gold and everything but just going back to kind of the early years where i was interested in bitcoin um then ethereum started coming uh, to to the world back in 2014 and ethereum was really a very very interesting uh kind of evolution from bitcoin where bitcoin is something that you can Um, buy, I'm sorry, hold and and send an asset. You literally have a ledger that represents ownership where you can uh, issue transactions, sign transactions, and kind of update that ledger in a new block. And it was kind of uh, narrow in what you can actually do with, with the actual Bitcoin blockchain. Ethereum was an improvement on that, where here you can start to program money. And so not only you have a scarce... Digital assets, now you can actually program how that asset is going to be sent. And this mirrors very much what you can do with financial contracts. And so that's kind of the, the whole genesis of my interest for, for crypto and for Bitcoin and for blockchain in general is really around how that technology, which is blockchain, can be used in the context of implementing financial contracts and, and programming money. And this is what we call DeFi today. And I think there's so much more to that.
0: Um, And so I understand kind of following that you you also founded a couple of companies. So this isn't your first startup. And so could you just kind of talk us through, through your like founder experience and then what specifically led you to, to Kaiko today?
1: So, so it's kind of Kaiko is my first proper startup experience. Let's call it this way. I've always had, I think, a, a bit of an entrepreneurial mindset and I've, You know, started small businesses when I was kind of while I was a student. Um, But after that, I went kind of head down into banking and I stayed for almost a decade at HSBC Um, as I was personally interested in investing into various areas of the blockchain space. I met the original founder of Kaiko, which is the current CEO of Ledger, the crypto custodian. He's called Pascal. He founded the company in 2014 when I was still at HSBC. And two and a half years later, um, he was offered uh, a position at Ledger and he was looking to pretty much hand over Kaiko. Uh, to someone else, and potentially sell down the business, and that at that point I left HSBC and acquired Keiko. So Keiko is not just my first real startup experience; it's also my first managerial experience. Um, trading floors are environments where notoriously it, it's very flat. Um, people are kind of a lot of lone wolves, and and you don't really get a lot of management opportunities until later in your career, and so. Kaiko was pretty much the first real um, proper startup, proper managerial uh, experience.
0: Interesting. So, what year was it that you you joined Kaiko?
1: It was late 2016.
0: Okay. All right. So that's a, a very interesting moment to have joined, and I guess um, if you look at where the organization is now compared to where it was then. I mean, really, you've been at the helm for, I guess, the majority of its significant growth, right? They were very early days back in 16.
1: Absolutely. And especially for a B2B SaaS company um, in a crypto world where there was absolutely no B2B segments within crypto. Um, I mean, blockchain has been originally a very retail driven space. And we're in the business of selling data and relatively sophisticated, precise and expensive data. And so back in 2015, um, There was just nobody to buy sophisticated, reliable data because they were all retail individuals. And when I bought Bitcoin back in 2014, I didn't run a backtest before I decided to purchase uh, Bitcoin. Right. I didn't like have to compare the data on Kraken, Coinbase and Bitstamp before taking a decision. I just went with whatever was out there and easiest. And so creating and building and kind of growing startups is hard enough in worlds where you have an addressable markets. And in the first years uh, from 2014 to 2016, it must have been really difficult because there was just no addressable markets. And so thereby nobody to give feedback, nobody to criticize or ask for specific products that you can build. So it was very visionary of Pascal back in 2014 to say, hey, at some point the world will need reliable historical market data on crypto. Um, But to your point, when I joined, it was really kind of the first moments where we've seen the emergence of that need for data because it was 2016 2017 was kind of the emergence of the ico years if you remember that kind of crazy period of time where you had some projects that were launching tokens and raising hundreds of millions and and it you know money attracts money so as soon as there were some kind of hype around new projects in crypto there were two types of b2b like uh, investors Those were the ones that were looking at exchange data and trying to arbitrage a specific pair such as Bitcoin dollar across different exchanges or people that were trying to have a more VC approach and trying to build uh, pricing models on tokens. So looking at projects and trying to kind of uh, model the way this token was supposed to behave. I I believe most generally this was a failure because it was such a new type of of thing and you can't just compare a token to an equity. Um, but in any case, this ICO bubble that I think we can fairly call it a bubble back then um, created the first need for market data in the crypto space. And that's how we started bootstrapping the company again from 2017 onwards when I joined and we grew the company in 2017 all the way to uh, kind of late 2017, early 2018, where we raised our first round of funding. That was our pre-seed round that enabled us to hire first full-time uh, employees and hire um, a kind of bigger engineering team and grow the company from then on. So you're absolutely right. The kind of second birth of Keiko was mid 2017 uh, when we benefited from the growth of the general crypto industry and the emergence of that b2b segment
0: yeah and so of course you know when people see the headline number of 24 million now in a series a um, it kind of feels like an overnight success or the, the latest overnight success but in actuality there's a very long hard slog there you know from what I could figure what you're saying it's at least two three years before you had it a pre-seed seed round. Um, and it's six years on before you have your Series A. So you know, there's a lot of bootstrapping there. You've presumably had to be very capital efficient and and grow the, the business organically.
1: Absolutely. I mean, a lot of the, the crypto, I mean, generally the crypto B2B uh, startups um, have raised quite, you know, they've, they've managed to raise when there was this first Surge for Bitcoin interest back in 2018. And then there was this very long winter. We call it the crypto winter. There was, you know, Bitcoin crashed from 20K all the way down to 3K, I think. Um, and that was late 2018, if I'm, uh, if I'm not mistaken. And then we entered that horrible bear market where we had to be very, very careful on how we managed our cash just to kind of survive and make sure we had the time to build the right products for the next wave of adoption. And that next wave really came to life during the second half of 2020. Uh, I'm talking about the more institutional B2B segment still. Uh, we've seen over the second half of 2020, a lot of very large corporates, a lot of large capital markets institutions, even banks now uh, announcing that they're launching a digital assets team or practice, or that they would allocate a specific percentage of their investments to crypto assets. And so that's um, new interest from the institutional side of things has really come to life last year.
0: Yeah. And, you know, well done for your persistence there. Cause I think, as you say, you know, I mean, everybody experienced a crypto winter from uh, end of 18, but that was even more pronounced in a B2B context. Um, that the sales cycles are longer, but it was harder to raise venture venture capital Um, And so, you know, you guys have obviously done very well to ride that out. And of course, now, I guess the reason why we're talking is perhaps your moment has come or the the moment for the kind of B2B category, the institutional category has arrived. And I definitely want to talk about some of the data points that you might have that, that would indicate that. But before we do, could we just start with understanding the premise of Kaiko, so not necessarily what you do, but why you do it. Like, why do you need a Kaiko? Why do we need um, a better quality of data? What is it that that makes possible?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So, why do we need data? We need data because we need information, and we need this information to be reliable and to be accurate. Um, Kaiko is in the business of market data, so financial data, meaning uh, what's called market uh, depth or offer and demand, um, which is all of the buy orders and all of the sell orders that are representing literally just the offer and demand that is out there for crypto, right? So if tomorrow you want to buy a Bitcoin, you're going to create an account on an exchange, you're going to credit your account with some euros or sterlings or dollars, and then you're going to place a buy order. Uh, the combination, the sum of all those buy orders combined with the combination of all the sell orders is what represents the actual market. And then you have what's called price discovery, which is at the intersection of offer and demand is where people agree on price. So obviously, I want to buy cheap and people want to sell expensive. And so at some point, people agree on a price and make a transaction. This is what's, what's called price discovery. This is how you actually define the price of anything. This We're talking about this in the context of crypto, but it could be exactly the same thing with pretty much any asset that is on a market. That activity, that trading activity is done across uh, crypto exchanges. There are two types of crypto exchanges, some that are centralized crypto exchanges, such as Coinbase where it's very easy to just go there and trade, pretty much like you would use any normal website. And then there is more sophisticated on-chain DeFi-based exchanges, which are called decentralized exchanges. So the trading activity, that, that market, that matching of offer and demand is done across a very fragmented exchange landscape. And the technical challenges that you need to solve in order to get data from all these various Marketplaces are relatively technical and challenging. And so that's pretty much what we do. We make the access to information around markets and prices more easily accessible for institutional investors or even enterprises or startups, anyone who needs to know in an accurate fashion what is the price of every single crypto asset, and not just on a specific trading venue, but globally. Um, would find it easier to come to us rather than trying to do what we do themselves just because it takes a 30-people team to do what we do and it doesn't make sense for everyone to internalize that. So we are an aggregator in some way. We, we provide a consolidated um, platform where people can access data from over 100 different marketplaces.
0: In a world of open data, um, so presumably the large majority of data that you aggregate is is open and in, in theory it is available to everybody how do you build a business model around that um and is, is there a proprietary element that augments that you know how do you build data sets that are of a higher quality is it or is it not is it not about quality it's actually just more about ease of use timeliness is, is so there, there other Yeah, it's
1: a very fair question. And there is a, indeed, you're absolutely right in saying that the data is, quote unquote, publicly available in real time. Meaning that if you go to Coinbase right now, you can see in real time the market structure, the offer, the demand and the executed trades. However, this data is exposed in real time. But if tomorrow you're just waking up and you say, hey, I'm going to run a backtesting on last month's Bitcoin dollar data. It's going to be very, very challenging for you to find data from a month ago across, let's call it the seven crypto exchanges on which you want to look at this data. So the historical data is one thing that is actually not available publicly because it is broadcasted in real time, but then disappears over time. So that's one information that sometimes people don't really uh, realize the actual exchange data, such as the Coinbase data or Kraken or Binance, all of these large crypto trading venues are centralized exchanges, and they do not record order books or transactions into the blockchain. So the data is not publicly accessible apart if you scrape it in real time from the exchange. That's information one. And second, even if all of that information was publicly available, even historically. It's more about the infrastructure and the technology. That's where we build value. If tomorrow all of the exchanges charge whatever, 10 euro per exchange per feed to get the data, we would still do exactly what we do and provide the same value, which lies in building the infrastructure, building the connectivity and delivering clean, standardized data in a single consolidated place. We would just reflect the charge, uh, the data charge onto the end client charge. So if I can make a very you know easy comparable, it's like saying, yeah, but there's water over there at the lake, um, and the water is free, but I'm like, yeah, okay, but I can also put it in a pipe and you just have to open it and brush your teeth. You know, it's really about making the data easily accessible. And that's where I believe we're building value and not necessarily in making pay for data that is indeed, uh, inherently available publicly in real time.
0: Yeah. And I'm assuming, you know, because of the aggregation, there is economies of scale, but also it's really about timeliness and um, usability because uh, I'd imagine that many of the reasons why you would want this data is to perform a certain trade. And that trade has a window of time where you could execute it. So, you know, going back, crunching historical data, trying to find the right feeds to turn that into an actionable insight, you know, every hour that takes you is, is a Potentially a lost trade. So
1: yeah, I mean the the right word you just said is economies of scale. Like I have a team of fifteen engineers and like uh, twelve product support ops people. Like it doesn't make sense for every business to have uh, twenty five people on like the technical side building the data infrastructure. It just it just doesn't. It's an economy of scale because you'll get a better product for less for a fraction of the cost if you had to internalize all of that. I, the comparison that I can make is with Geico, with we use Salesforce, for example, right? We haven't built our own CRM because there are great tools out there and it's just cheaper and better for us to use an existing leading provider rather than try to sort it out with Google Sheets and et cetera.
0: Yeah, understood. So could you tell us about where you're seeing demand coming from and has that changed? You know, so you referenced that Twenty twenty, there was all of a sudden this. I don't know if it's resurgence, like at the beginning, maybe even of a meaningful institutional demand. Could you kind of expand on that for us? Talk through some of the segments of demand and, and how that's evolving, changing.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So, as you you know, as you rightly pointed out, the the initial um market that we had was very much crypto native um crypto quant funds kind of that were looking at crypto assets from a quantitative standpoint and trying to run back tests and apply different kind of trading strategies to the crypto space but initially there were relatively small crypto funds Um over time that grew, those crypto funds became larger crypto funds. Some of those crypto funds are huge crypto funds today. So they grew in magnitude. and needed just more data, better data, faster data, et cetera. That's one part of the segment. The new segment that came to life last year is traditional capital markets, institutions, asset managers, hedge funds, and banks that are now looking at crypto from the angle of, hey, this is a new asset class that we cannot ignore anymore because now it's worth $2 trillion. And it's something that actually has liquidity, that actually has volume, and that we can treat as a pretty much a new alternative asset class. And so that's an entirely different type of of clients um, who also have, in all fairness, like a different expectation of what to get when they think about financial market data. Different expectations in terms of SLAs and and latency, for example, which is completely different than what you see in the crypto native world. um, In the equities world, a few millisecond latency is barely acceptable, whereas in crypto, you know, you could have a few seconds latency. And that is because the infrastructure of all the crypto exchanges and crypto businesses is still very much cloud-based. You know, the current financial industry works with data centers and optic fiber cables and microwaves, and, and there's a lot of investments that have been made in how quickly, how fast we can convey information. This is still relatively new in the in the crypto world. We're doing, um, I think, what's best out there, and and we're somewhere with latencies around 40 milliseconds. So that's just to give you orders of magnitude of how like client demand has evolved. From initially, we were sending daily updates. We were sending files once a day with like the trades that happened during that day. Today, we have a few millisecond level latency in order to deliver real time data through streaming protocols. And so it's interesting how quickly that happened over a year, a year and a half, something we've been expecting for a while and building the company towards that industry and those needs. I come from the financial traditional financial world where that is the expectation. So <clears throat> I think we've been able to plan ahead quite successfully, but still there is a lot that we can um uh, improve on. And I think the next stage of um client adoption is going to be moving from trading Bitcoin to actually looking how you can use blockchain. And, and that brings us to DeFi. So DeFi um is for me a very interesting sandbox proving that you can use blockchain as a technology to implement um money markets, financial applications, um, you can issue securities, you, sh- you can you know, create credit, lending, borrowing markets. There's plenty of things that are currently being done on DeFi. I think I'm interested in now seeing traditional capital markets institutions look at blockchain from an infrastructure standpoint and say, hey, what areas of my own uh, tech can I improve leveraging blockchain as a technology?
0: Yeah, so there's, there's a lot there, actually. There's a couple of things uh, I, I want to go Back to ask some more information on, and, and then I want to come back to this I- idea of DeFi as a sandbox, and, and could it be anything more than a sandbox in the future? But just in terms of this kind of new buyer that buyer type that you have, um, firstly, are, are these dedicated teams or functions within these larger institutions? Uh, are they are they kind of spun out and created as entirely separate entities, or what? What kind of patterns are you seeing
1: there? Uh, no, I mean, we're seeing now, you know, it's it's been, I'm not, I'm not uh, saying anything confidential here, but like uh, Fidelity has been historically very much interested in digital asset. They actually have an entity called Fidelity Digital Asset. Goldman has announced that as well. Uh, JP Morgan, Citi, like all of the large BlackRock has hired recently a head of digital asset strategy. So I feel that now it's very much accepted that uh, this is an area where large institutions want to put focus and interest and money, which is significantly different than a couple of years ago where saying crypto or Bitcoin was like, you know, inappropriate in the business context almost.
0: <laughs> yeah. And, and and the other point was around latency. So obviously, you know, for those that might have read Flash Boys or whatever, this idea of latency taken to its extreme, um, you know, where where you're looking for that millisecond advantage in, in, in a given trade. So, of course, a lot of people, when they think of crypto, think about this democratization of finance, that somehow it's putting everybody on an equal playing field, which is distinct and different to how they perceive the existing financial markets or traditional financial markets. Um, You know, do you think that now we're seeing an asymmetry in in an advantage for institutions that are coming in, you know, that that can take advantage of things like latency?
1: I think so. I, you know, it's I think where institutions are probably a bit taking advantage is not so much on. What's going on actually on blockchains, it's mostly what's going on with the world of ETPs and, and derivatives on crypto. So there's, you know, two ways you can quote unquote buy Bitcoin. You can either go on an exchange, buy a Bitcoin and then move it to your own personal hardware wallet or whatever system you use to protect your private key. This is what it means to hold a Bitcoin. And this is what people in the retail space do with crypto. They get their crypto, they store it on a wallet that is secure, they have their passphrase, you know, that's what it means owning a Bitcoin. What institutions have been doing lately is issuing uh, synthetics that tracks very often with high leverage the price of Bitcoin as an underlying asset, this is where I believe there is a bit of an unfair advantage or, you know, it's kind of institutions have this ease of trading synthetics and leveraged financial instruments and relatively exotic type of options and derivatives. And and that has created snowball effects on the price of cryptos and volatility around expiry of options and things like that, that I find um, very you know, sometime a bit unhealthy and a bit asymmetric compared to the ethos of blockchain, which is about democratizing the access to money and having a unit of account that is freely transferable, that is censorship resistant, etc. So you're absolutely right. I wouldn't put the latency issue in there. Uh, the latency is like, how quickly can I get the information and how quickly can I trade? That does create probably like some advantage, but for me, the most, uh, Unfair. I, I'm not sure I'm using the word unfair right because there are derivatives accessible to a retail user as well. It's just generally, you know, trading synthetics and trading exotic options on underlines is more something that sophisticated investors do and that institutions do. And and thereby that's where I think it doesn't really align with the ethos of blockchain.
0: Yeah, and of course, and I think that's really interesting. And of course, there's a load of friction with actually Trading the underlying asset um, versus trading a synthetic, which you know exists within the existing financial system, and and um, re- deliberately removes a lot of that friction, and in some cases is even managed. Yeah, um, and you know, there's a
1: difference. I even if you, even at the retail level, like I differentiate holding one Bitcoin on a Ledger hardware wallet versus having acquired one Bitcoin on Revolut. Uh, I'm not saying it's bad to buy Bitcoin on Revolut. It's just you don't have your Bitcoin. What you have is a promise from Revolut to give you the price of Bitcoin when you decide to, to, to get out of your position. But you don't own a Bitcoin at all, right? You can't take your Bitcoin and then do something with it. You, what you can do is retransfer that money in euro or dollar or whatever. Um, and, and I think it's important to mention that, to not get the... the, the Going back to what it means to to... Create a blockchain-based digital currency and or units of account or however we call it has a lot to do with the direct ownership of that asset and the fact that you control it. It's decentralized because there is no central entity between you and your actual assets In the context of Bitcoin, the asset is Bitcoin, and so buying a Bitcoin on Revolut, there is Revolut in the middle. If, if they you know take the app out of the app store or whatever, and you don't have access to it, your Bitcoin is lost forever. Whereas the notion of, of ownership and the notion of being in control of your funds is very important. And it's key to understanding what blockchain means for the people.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And you mentioned something earlier in leverage, the amount of leverage in the system. And a lot of people, you know, their criticism of crypto is, is that, well, the problem with it is, uh, if you believe it is an alternative financial system, is that nobody really understands the amount of leverage in it? Is that true? Are we beginning to understand better leverage in the system and, and how that, and to be able to forecast how that might play out?
1: Yeah, I mean uh, that's uh, you know the the people that offer leverage um, generally are relatively educated and they hedge their themselves and they are you know able to settle upon delivery of whatever leverage position they sell. Um, but it does create more money than there actually is, right? So a bank with a hundred in deposit can issue a thousand in loans, right? So, so that's um, a way that we are artificially creating liquidity and an upside, and and I think that can have some dangerous effects, especially going back to you know you wanted to talk a little bit about DeFi, especially in a world where we tend to forget the notion of counterparty risk. Um, you can get some highly rewarding, you can loan a Bitcoin and get some crazy yield on it on some DeFi protocols. And people get very excited because they look at the percentage return, but they forget about the risk of losing 100% of your capital. Um, So the whole like leveraged positions, derivatives, synthetics, and also some of the crazy stuff happening on DeFi is you know should be taken for me with a drop of of um, attention and and just make sure that we never forget about who's behind it, who's issuing, what's their reputation, what's the reliability of that issuer and and yeah, I, I'm I think we're I, there is a potential like scenario where we repeat a lot of the mistakes of traditional finance. Onto a blockchain, and I think that would be a shame if we—the the whole thing was built in order to improve the existing financial system—and we shouldn't take the worst of finance and put it on a blockchain. We should really like take the best of finance, and there's a lot of really amazing things of how financial engineering and financial markets currently work, and take that and put it on a blockchain. You know? So I'm, I'm always raising that as a as a as an area for concern because. It would be a shame if we just focused on leverage and yield and forgot about all of what happened in traditional financial markets.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And what triggered all this, right? You know, Bitcoin has been direct response to the 2008 crisis. So, um, and of course, there are entirely new forms of leverage that exist in DeFi that haven't existed in traditional markets as well. So, um, but but let's let's kind of close off on on this point around uh, um, DeFi because. I mean, you have given a very nuanced kind of description of how you, you, you see DeFi. Earlier, you also mentioned um, DeFi as a sandbox. How much do you think DeFi is just a sandbox versus something that has the potential to um, either complement, augment, or, or compete with the traditional financial system?
1: I think it's definitely definitely an augment, I, I really think, and I'll give the example of what I know best, which is an equity derivative. An equity derivative is a relatively standardized contra. There is something called ISDA, which is like a master agreement that defines the rules and the terminology around how you issue a derivatives contract. It's it's relatively frameworked already, and yet it's still a relatively inefficient process in the sense that so many intermediaries are involved between the issuer of an equity derivative and the moment the investor in that derivatives gets its payout. And there is a middle office, back office, a settlement agency. There's someone that is going to observe the closing price of the underlying security at maturity, potentially do some agenting over a couple of days if that's how the payout is constructed. And all of that can be very, very easily um, disintermediated and made more efficient using a smart contract on Ethereum. And I'm, you know, I'm I'm being maybe a a little bit, I'm exaggerating a little bit, but not that much. You could, what you need in order to create a smart contract that replicates uh, a derivatives contract is uh, a starting price, a strike price. And then what you need is at maturity of that contract, let's say in whatever, three months, you need a closing price. So what you need is a data provider to be able to provide on-chain to that contract a closing price, and then... The contract can literally just apply a relatively basic mathematical formula. Generally, it's a subtraction. It's the difference between the strike and the closing price. If it's positive, you get a payout. If it's negative, you get zero, and that's it. And that is an example of something that is relatively like, heavy still in the traditional capital markets world, and that could very easily be disintermediated or made more efficient or augmented, as you said, using a blockchain. And I'm not saying, you know, DeFi should start offering plenty of different equity derivatives. I'm saying banks should consider blockchain as a better platform for issuing derivatives and settling derivatives and maybe just thinking back to how do we do things today in traditional financial markets? We're basically digitizing the old way of doing it in the 80s, but we're doing it faster because we have internet. How about we just rethink the way we do it? And blockchain is an incredible opportunity for rethinking the way we represent ownership and then build financial contracts that is referring to that ownership. Um, so I think it's definitely an augment. Uh, there are more and more banks that are now looking at blockchain. A lot of them are still in this uh, thesis of, you know, blockchain is great, but crypto is bad, and thereby we'll be working on the basis of private blockchains. I think there's so much that can be done on public blockchains, and, and that opening finance is something that should be an opportunity for banks and not necessarily uh, uh, just a threat, which is... Still, what it's perceived to be today.
0: Yeah, and of course, you know, integrity of data in, in that use case that you mentioned there around what triggers various uh, logic in smart contracts becomes increasingly important. Where's what's the data source? Um, its integrity, and and I imagine that increasingly regulators will be looking at what the input is um, that begins to perform these transactions. So. So look, um, it's been a real pleasure talking to you, actually, you've refreshed my understanding of um, what's going on in both the institutional space, but also DeFi. Um, Congratulations on your round, as I said, you've done incredibly well to stick it out for for this long, and I'm glad that uh, you're now kind of enjoying the growth that I guess you always knew was coming. Great. That was awesome. Thank you so much. If you enjoyed today's podcast, please make sure you subscribe, rate and share your feedback to help us reach as many people as possible with the important mission of Web3.